This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow that examines the pandemic's impact on the business of real estate. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Today on the program is Andrea Himmel, who's the Director of Acquisitions at Himmel Meringoff. The company, which her mother Leslie Himmel co-founded in 1985, has acquired and repositioned more than 50 commercial properties in the city over the years. Andrea says they're still big believers in the New York City office market, despite all the headlines, and they're continuing to look for industrial assets too. She walks me through their strategy in a moment, but first I asked her if it was always the plan for her to join the company. No, not at all, actually. My mom told me, I, I, so I went to Wharton undergrad. I did Joseph Wharton Scholars, the honors program, studied real estate. But before that, I always thought I was going to go into consumer products with my father, who, is, who owned brands like Ovaltine and Goldbond, and um, ended up studying real estate at Wharton and falling in love with it. Worked at Brookfield for two years after I graduated, and it was 08, 09. And basically, it was a very slow time, and I wanted to grow and continue to challenge myself. And nobody would hire me in real estate because everyone figured, oh, your mom is in the business, she'll hire you. And my mom always said, no, you're never coming into this business. I don't really? want to. Yeah. <laughs> no? She was afraid that, you know, sometimes families implode and that would kill both her family and her business that she's built for over 40 years. So I totally respected that. Um, she encouraged me to actually take a job with Lou Sanders, who is the co-founder of Sanford Bernstein and CEO of Alliance Bernstein. He was launching a hedge fund um, and I was part of that founding team. There are seven of us. It manages 60 billion today in a long-term value-oriented strategy. And I worked for Lou two to three hours a day, every day for seven years. I focused on oil and gas equities, um, but I just consider that real estate below grade and basically ended up starting my own private equity fund in 2016 after oil prices collapsed and there's arbitrage on the private assets versus public equities, which were still reflecting $60, $70 oil. So raised a small fund that we tripled within a year to buy royalties on oil and gas production in South Texas. Then we raised 300 million from Elliott, uh, the hedge fund based in New York that's actually moving or you know adding offices to, to Florida. Um, and we uh, continue to invest that. Three years ago, my mom said, was looking at actually building SL Green was marketing, well, not marketing, but you know, showing us, and um, we, we were getting very busy, and I was basically a tenant in her space after I was a tenant that we were, so she encouraged me to start, after we raised the 300 million, we, she encouraged me to start, um, helping her underwrite properties. And that's when it all began. We know we, we began with an industrial thesis, which by the way, we, we entered in 1986, but we, I really focused the first year on industrial assets in the boroughs. And that resulted in the $90 million purchase of an eight acre site in Parkchester in the Bronx um, with a 300,000 square foot last mile warehouse. So um, the acquisition so far has been busy. It's been great. I've you know, my ups and downs, but working, I'd say working with family is, is, has been very amazing. It's been unbelievable for me. I stand on the shoulders of giants, but I'd also like to thank Steve Marangoff, who has really taken me under his wing when he didn't have to. And, and I, I feel very lucky for the mentorship I've had 
It sounds like your mum kind of did a, a bit of a 180 there with uh, <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, don't enter the business. Okay. Well, she was the acquisitions team before I started. Now I'm the acquisitions team with her. So we're, we're small people wise. We manage a lot, but we, we, we're, we're small in terms of headcount. So it's been a, a wonderful experience to learn and grow. There's not that many um, mother-daughter dynasties in New York. Plenty of father-son dynasties and a few father-daughter dynasties, but not that many mother-daughter ones. Do you? <laughs> there aren't that many mother-daughter combinations. We know some brokers who um, who work with their their mothers. Um, we were looking at an off-market deal on Fifth Avenue through them. Um, yeah, it's a little more uncommon just because females aren't landlords generally. There's an assumption that they're probably brokers or, you know, in human resources, which is incorrect, but especially now that it's changing, which is so important. But I've, I've been very fortunate. I, I, I wouldn't call us a dynasty, especially in the context. <laughs> I mean, we're not necessarily even a family business in the sense that it's even my mom's partnership. Um, but, you know, I'm being groomed to have, have a role over time. You must feel a little bit of a sense of responsibility. I mean, I know you, you, as you say, you're an advocate and she's an advocate for women. And of course it would be remiss of me not to mention it's International Women's Month this month and it was International Women's Day on Monday. Um, Amen, yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's something, do you feel a sense of responsibility? Or do you feel a sense of, you need to keep pushing the conversation forward? I feel conflicted actually. So on the one hand, I feel like women, it's their time to shine and they need the spotlight and they need the responsibility and they need to start delegating and they need to not, um, they need to rise on their own merits though. And that's really important. So I think the doors aren't open fully for women, but the, the glass ceiling is yours to break and you, you need to win it on your own merits. So sometimes I, I fear you know, feminism that kind of screams like, treat us the same, we're different. But um, I'm a huge advocate for women. I'm, I'm personally a gay woman who um, is, you know, very supportive of, of folks in of all walks of life. So I serve on the board of directors of Habitat for Humanity New York. Um, I mentor a bunch of students out of a, a, a charter school in Brooklyn. And um, I think it's really important, not just to, and this is something Billie Jean King said. She said, when people would say to her, what, look at what you're doing for tennis. Not that I'm co comparing myself to Billie Jean King, but look at what you've done for women in tennis. And she goes, look what I've done for humans in tennis. And I think it's important to, you know, bring attention to, it's important, the, the significance of elevating people who are young, elevating folks who are minorities, elevating women. Um, we need all equal platforms. And as you say, um, women elevating, but elevating on their own merits too. And it's a, it's a complicated. It's, it's, yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I'd rather talk about a deal than my femininity or, you know, some your feminism, you know, femininity. Or... Yeah, exactly. But um, at the same time, I think it's important to have these conversations because we socialize ourselves to the normalcy of communicating effectively and openly about topics that were once um, harmful to talk about. So tell me a little bit about, you mentioned office and you mentioned industrial. You're now head of acquisitions and that's a, that's a big job when you're in an acquisitive phase. Where would you say the, the big targets are for you right now? 
we've always bought office in emerging neighborhoods. So we were in Long Island City in 1984, in Harlem in 1979, in uh, Chelsea, when you could only get $4 a foot for a manufacturing tenant, Park Avenue South when it was Fourth Avenue. We want to be near, we think emerging markets now are near transportation hubs. So call it Grand Central Penn Station, Midtown East. Um, we like the the um, opportunity within the office market in well-located, high-quality buildings. So not not you know low it's not low-ceiling mid-block pr properties that have 70% vacancy and need a few hundred bucks a foot of capital infusion. But we're focused on avenue frontage, off-market deals with distress and complexity to them, where the anxiety scares a lot of people away, and we're looking to partner with like-minded equity partners on, on these sort of deals. Let me take a step back and tell you, the availability rate right now in New York City of office space is 16%. Now, historically, it's been about 11%. So with almost a billion square feet in the entire New York City submarket of office, you've got about 150 million square feet of vacancy, when normal should be about 107 million. So you have to lease about 45 million square feet. That's a lot of square footage, but let me, let me put it this way. If New York lost 100,000 workers, which is about right, and the average person consumed 150 square feet per person, then you only have 15 million square feet lost, not 50 million. So I think there's been, an, as there are in markets, an overreaction, an overcorrection um, in leasing activity relative to employment declines. Similarly, if you looked at the number of jobs in New York City, so 6.6 .6 million, if office jobs are about 10% or 15% of those, because you have a lot in hospitality and retail and, and manufacturing, if then you have about a million office jobs. If that fell about 5%, which employment has fallen roughly for um, you know like white collar jobs, then you lose. 50,000 employees, which is only 8 million square feet at 150 square feet per person. So the fact that we have 50 million square feet vacant, but we're somewhere between 8 and 15 million lost in jobs, suggests to me there's a big overreaction. And while it, it will take time to get through the vacancy, especially at the sublease space at almost a quarter of available square footage, there's going to be a flight to quality and this is an overreaction. That's thinking about job losses, but what if people's jobs change, which is, I feel like the big- So important. <laughs> right, let's talk about the other, you know, if there's 6.6 .6 million New York City employees, um, or employees based in New York, um, there's gonna be a shrinkage and changes in, in secular consumption of office space. So in the same way that after 9-11, you know, people said they wouldn't go back downtown, they wouldn't go above the 18th floor, the changes were secular, turnstiles, security checks. Now we have COVID, you know, health checks. We have, you know, mask wearing. There are secular changes in demand and there are going to be secular changes in office density consumption. Um, and, you know, work schedules. If you're on an AB team, you don't need two times the amount of square footage for half-functioning teams at any given point in time. So. There will be secular changes. We don't try to underwrite the specifics of it as to timing and you know magnitude of the return, but we do think about you know over a seven to ten year holding period, and we've had partners that we've bought out earlier than that 
um, over a seven to 10 year holding period, can we double our money by, um, you know, buying office and assuming some inflation in the cap rate and uh, trying to get into the low price per square foot. Okay, so you're thinking about all of those things. You're thinking, will people shrink their space? Will people um, choose to have fewer people in the office based on- yeah. but look at all the positive data points. Like this year, we had TikTok, Apple, Facebook, t Amazon take space in New York City. You know, they were, they totaled millions of square feet. We do have a lot of square footage under construction in the office space. We have about 22 million square feet, which is about half of that comes from Hudson Yards. Um, but we've seen a lot of leasing activity this year. Um, even, even look at Hudson Yards, you know, it has Pfizer, BlackRock, Ernst & Young, Time Warner, KKR, Skadden Arps. I mean, it's, it's leased buildings that are up to 3 million square feet. So leasing activity is there. We have a building that's 500,000 square feet on 57th between 10th and 11th, 525 West 57th. It has 200,000 square feet available. And we're, we're framing it as like science space because it's an zone building. But we see a lot of the office tenants that are large in the market looking for big chunks of space, call it 50 to 200,000 square feet. And there's, there's a substantial pipeline of those sort of tenants, more, more in the tech space. So we're optimistic about the overtime return to office and work from work. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly those big leases that everyone, every person I speak to is like, hey, but what about, what about TikTok? What about Facebook? Um, so there are those sorts, of, those sorts of deals that people are really turning to as kind of like a green shoot, I suppose. Um, you mentioned that you were seeing the same sorts of availabilities that the REITs are seeing. Um, has anyone handed back space yet? Has anyone said we're out totally? Um, is that happening? We, or is it more that people are like, we're just, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting? We have some co-working tenants that we've either declared in default or that have requested relief that cannot be met. So, you know, we're, we're working with our tenants really hard to keep them, go to sustain them and keep them going through because, you know, our buildings, the floor plates are 12 to 20,000 square feet. So you have tenants for whom their office rent is a significant share of their income represented as a percentage of their total income. Just the, the amount they spend on rent is high relative to like a Bank of America, for example. So you do see tenants like the smaller ones saying, let me take a step back and see where we are in a year and we'll reassess our demand. And, um, you know, you do your best to work with those tenants. Obviously the preference is to keep tenants given that TIs and our and leasing commissions and, and CapEx can bring you, you know, to 200 bucks a foot easily. Um, if your building is pretty empty, you know, we're seeing like, for example, Facebook got 18 months of free rent at the Farley post office. Um, crazy high, isn't it? Hundred dollars per square foot in TI, or which is about 150 month, and a little less than 200. So the the concessions are large, and leases are shrinking in duration. So we're fighting for the longer term leases that are we're not buying off the the rental stack. Are you concerned about flexibility driving people out of the city at all? That's yeah. Been I mean, we've lost probably a, at least 100,000 New Yorkers to the suburban exodus. If you track the social media data, then you can see that actually a lot of them are, are, are staying with their families. So one thing we observe is 
that's not a sustainable pattern, right? Like I, I love my mom, I work for her, but I don't think I could live with her permanently. She couldn't live with me either, even though we neither of us can keep up with the other one. But um, I think if there's gonna be some pent up demand coming from people who are, you know, living more than the average 3.3 people per household um, because of the pandemic. Um, so the urban exodus is real, but we think a, a fair amount of it will return. We also haven't returned to normalcy in New York, where we just returned to 50% indoor dining capacity. Broadway is, is not back yet, although we're starting to see green shoots of announcements for new shows and, you know, even like the signs getting hung in Times Square. So we're starting to see the, the these moments of inspiration. And, you know, we've been through lots of cycles before, um, even I have been since 2008, but Leslie and Steve predominantly for over the past 40 years. So, you know, we, we were willing and able to withstand the downturn. If you bought New York City office in 2009 and held it for five years, you would have tripled your money. The return is significant for investing in distress if you do it selectively. Have you been one of those people that's made use of the flexibility throughout the year? Have you been out of the city? No, I've, I've stayed in New York uh, predominantly the whole time. Um, our office has been open since June. We, we've been very safe um, working on the AB teams, um, but we've been back in full action um, since at, at our offices since June. So tell me a little bit about the investment strategy with industrial. Where would you say, I know that your industrial holdings are in the boroughs. Yeah. Um, is that going to continue to be where you keep looking for assets to buy? We, we hope so, yeah. We would love to purchase more in the boroughs. Um, so basically, the first, Lou Sanders at, at the hedge fund I worked at, who's my mentor and boss, trained me very thoroughly on research and data. So the first thing we set out to do a few years ago when we looked at the industrial space was to say, okay, of the sites that are two to 15 acres, what is the owner composition of that in the Bronx, Queens, and Brooklyn? And what we learned was about one third of the owners of those 1500 sites are government agencies, DCAS, EDC, et cetera. One third are smart real estate investors. So think like Prologis, Tree, et cetera. We wouldn't want to buy from either of those categories because we're value add players. So we really focus on the final third, which is owner-occupied stock. So think your corrugated box manufacturer. So we've even bid on operating companies, um, like a blow molding company, in order to access the underlying real estate. Um, because we have to create a differentiated, creative, unique bid that solves for the seller's problems, not that meets our own demands. What we love is robust infrastructure, but we're also not afraid of distress in the infrastructure. So while we want 25 foot ceilings, we can work with 14 foot ceilings and raise the roof for 20 bucks a foot, 25 bucks a foot. Okay, so it's about rehabilitation, not about like ground up. It's not about- If we're gonna buy a deal on a ground up basis, which we, we, we have a few, we have one or two 11 acre sites in our pipeline, um, it's gotta work on an as is parking basis in the near term at, you know, a few basis, at, at, you know, three, call it two to 5% yield um, in order to be a long-term development play because we want the risk return profile to be asymmetric. 
and to provide us with a hedge downside with, with, with higher upside. Who are the big tenants right now? I mean, obviously Amazon, but like the whole city can't be leased to Amazon, right? Like it's... I don't know. I mean, Amazon is the preponderance of online sales, right? As far as, so it makes sense to me that the preponderance of the growth in leasing comes from Amazon. But yeah, you've got the bifurcation into the classic Amazon, uh, UPS, FedEx versus local contractor tenants. The local folks are paying anywhere between 15 and $19 per square foot in rent. Sometimes that's gross. Uh, the Amazons of the world are paying up to $35 triple net. So there's a big difference. Uh, look at DHL though. They're the largest consumer, or they're the largest 3PL in the world. That's third party logistics provider. They have 400 million square feet globally, I think. And they have no presence in New York. So there's going to be growth from non-Amazon UPS FedEx tenants. Mm -hmm. Call it the Wayfarers, the 3PLs of the world. The, um, there, there's, there's industries that aren't here yet. Um, you can look at like the, the government came to the U.S. with a mandate for 700 million square feet of industrial space after the pandemic began because they needed some, a permanent location to store medical supplies. 700,000 square feet of that is supposed to come to New York. Wow, okay. The difference between the rents that Amazon are paying and that other people are paying is extraordinary. I didn't realize it was that. And it created a big mispricing in the market because Amazon has toured every building. So every warehouse owner thinks his or her property could get 35 triple net on rent and sell for a sub four cap, which isn't realistic, right? I mean, a lot of the properties, while there are a bunch that are worth those metrics, the preponderance are not. And we, 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 don't mind, we, we, we don't mind being ahead of the leasing activity because it's a leap of faith that you have to take if you have conviction in a submarket. But um, it's, it's, there's definitely some assumptions you have to make about growth that should be conservative. Like I know people who model 10, 15, 20% annual growth on industrial rent because, you know, it's been so high historically in the past five to five years. Um, but that seems very, you know, aggressive for our outlook. We're much more conservative than that. What would you say your outlook is if it's not 10 to 15 to 20%? Is it we try to use just a normal lease growth rate, right? Like two and a half percent. Um, but, you know, we can't be too low on the assumptions for rent because then you kind of lose all your deals. But we're, we're, we're realistic. We're really in touch with the tenant community, the brokerage community, the off-market brokerage community. And we really do focus on on-the-ground comps, very comparable properties, too. We don't look at, you know, a building in the Bronx, a site that's eight acres in the Bronx, and compare it to a site that's even five acres in the Bronx in the same submarket because they're very different sites. Do you think much as as someone who's um, you know interested in developing and being part of this enormous growth of industrial, much about um, impacts on local communities? I don't know if that's something that kind of crosses your totally, mind. Totally, totally, and it's so important. So, our eight-acre site in Parkchester is part of a potential new rezoning that would generate call it north of 1.5 million square feet of space or probably, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 residential units. It's contingent upon a train stop 
coming from the um, the Metro North into Penn Station, and so we'll be 15 minutes away from Penn Station. But what we care about a lot is in rezoning an industrial building where you have employment. You know, we probably have there there are a couple hundred employees at one of our tenants in, in this building. Um, you know, how do you think about gentrification? How do you think about affordable housing? How do you think about working with the community boards and the transit agencies and all of the stakeholders in the decision and who are impacted by it? So my focus, I, you know, I spent a lot of time with Habitat for Humanity and uh, as I'm on the board there and very focused on creating affordable housing, especially in the time of a pandemic when work from home is so common but safety and equity in housing is not. Um, so we, we all need safe, equitable, fair housing to be working from home if we are working from home. So in summary, everyone's going to outside of New York City, you're not, you're 100% New We're, we're contrarian. I mean, look, we'd, we'd look at stuff in other markets, but we think our value add is our intensive management, our aggressive leasing, our in our uh, large capital infusions into properties. These are things that we don't feel as value additive doing in Memphis as we would in our backyard where we have property managers 24 hours a day, uh, supers, you know, everyone's at the sites constantly and we're re responding to tenant needs proactively. Andrea, thanks so much um, for chatting. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, BizNow. I love your organization and I really appreciate your, your audience taking the time to listen.